Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're in the middle of this series on the book of James. And this week we come to this passage that makes me think about the reality that history is riddled with men who claim to be God. Rarely is it a woman who claims to be God. Um, and that just shows you maybe uh, men are a bit more narcissistic uh, than women in general. Uh, but there's just example over example after example of delusional men who claim to be God. Let me just give you a few of these examples. You may have watched a few of those cult shows on HBO, so you might know a few of these names as I go through it here. The first one that uh, I'll mention is Arifin Mohammed. He was the founder of the Sky Kingdom cult in Malaysia. He claimed to be the king of the sky. Also, he claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus, the Buddha, Shiva, and the prophet Muhammad. All. He claimed to be them all. Say this man had a bit of an ego. He claimed that he had the powers of invisibility and he could telepathically kill someone. He had over 10,000 followers, and what he was most known for were just wacky architectural things. He built this huge teacup uh, on his uh, property that they had for the cult. Another one that you may have heard of is Marshall Applewhite, also claimed to be God, and he started the Heaven's Gate uh, cult. Uh, this is one of those that has a TV show that goes along with it. You might remember this guy. He's the one that convinced 37 of his followers that they had to get off Earth before it was recycled, quote unquote. And the way that they got off Earth before it was recycled was by catching a spaceship that was hiding in the tail, in the trail of the comet, of the Hellbop comet. Do you guys remember this guy, 1997? Uh, I was 13, you weren't born yet, so I know why you don't remember it. Um, but it was big news, and his uh, followers, uh, sadly, uh, followed him until the end, trying to catch the spaceship, sh spaceship in the, that comet by ending their own lives. David Koresh also claimed to be the son of God. Is that one anybody's familiar with, David Koresh? He was the leader of the Branch Davidians. He also claimed to be the son of God. And after many reports of sexual assault and hoarding weapons, the U.S. government tried to seize, siege their property. And there was a 70, uh, sorry, excuse me, a 51-day standoff. And it all ended tragically with a fire where Koresh and 75 of his followers lost their lives. I can remember that one when I was a child. That happened in 1994. I remember watching the news and seeing that happening. And uh, that's what Waco was most known for before Chip and Joanna Gaines started putting shiplap on every surface possible throughout that city. Jim Jones himself claimed to be Jesus. Uh, Jim Jones was, this is back in the 70s, but he's probably the most famous of all of these people. He started the, um, 
the People's Temple, which was kicked out of town after town until it moved to South America, where he started a new town called Jonestown, really humble and the, the naming of that town. Um, Jim was holding people against their will, and the U.S. government got involved. Uh, this time, a U.S. congressperson led an expedition to free his followers, but the followers attacked him. And then they drank the famous Kool-Aid, if you remember that uh, at some point in life. Friends, why do so many people claim to be God? Why do so many people come and claim to be the second coming of God or the second coming of Jesus or Muhammad? Why is every mental ward in the United States filled with 30 people who all claim to be the Messiah? History is riddled with story after story of destruction from these. And I hope that no one here actually thinks that they are God. If you are here and you do think that you are God, I have two words for you. Get help. You're not God. But what if I told you that you frighteningly have more in common with all of these people than what you would care to admit? In fact, I would say that the fundamental problem with the world is that each person desires to be their own God. Deep down, we might not be as as much of an egomaniac as each of these people. We might not be as much of a narcissist as each of these people. But deep down, each of us wants to be in control of our own lives and our own God. We want the power, we want the control, we want the glory. This was actually at the heart of the very first sin. When you look back at the sin in the Garden of Eden, when Satan came to Eve as a serpent, what did he tempt her with? It wasn't just the fruit, but he says, when when Eve says, no, God doesn't want us to eat the fruit, Satan says, he doesn't want you to eat the fruit because he knows that when you eat the fruit, you'll become like him. And so with that very first sin, he's tempting Eve, not just to rebel against God, but to usurp God and to become her own God and to say, I am in control of my own destiny. That was at the heart of the very first sin, is a desire to be her own God. It's at the heart of every sin. Every time we sin against the Lord, it's saying, God, I don't want you to be God. I want to be in charge. I want what's best for me, and I am willing to do whatever I want to do to get that. Every human on this planet wants to be their own God. We put an enormous amount of pressure on ourselves, do we not, to be perfect, to hold it all together? Just that pressure... It's unsustainable for any human. The expectations that we put on ourselves. We feel this pressure to control our time, to control our futures perfectly. When we see injustices in the world, we want to become that ultimate judge and dish out the condemnation that others deserve. We want the power, we want the control, we want the glory. And this is common to man. All of us struggle with this. But friends, I'm going to start this sermon with just really good news. And just something that I want you to breathe in deep and to hear this and to feel this all the way to your core. 
and just allow this to affect you for just a minute. You aren't God. No one's expecting you to be God. You don't have to hold it all together. You aren't in control of the future. Doesn't that feel good? Once you accept that and know that, like, actually, I'm not in control of this, it can take away a bit of that anxiety. It's not up to you to make sure that the world is ridded of every injustice. Friends, you are not God. In fact, you are a screw up. (laughs) And that's okay. You are not God. Just settle for being a child of God, for being loved by the one who is in control of all things. Isn't that better than the pressure we put on ourselves to be perfect, to meet every expectation, to know that the one who is perfect and can meet every expectation actually loves us and cares for us? Friends, that's the point of Christianity. When you trust in Jesus, God adopts you into his family, and he loves you like a child. Now you let him be God and you be a child of God. It's always so sad when we rob children of their childhoods, when we expect too much out of children. You see this all the time. In fact, I think that all of us can resonate with that in one way or another, where our parents or our grown-ups expected more than what they should out of us. Where my firstborn children at? You know what it's like to have more than what any human could actually bear placed on your shoulders. I think all of us can resonate with this, but especially those who grew up in homes that where neglect was a reality. You were expected to grow up too quickly. And here today, God is reminding us that you're not expected to have it all put together, but you're expected to run to the one who does. Because he is a father who cares for us. He desires to draw near to us in our mess. Because in Christ, we're clean. The foundational problem with humanity is that we want to be our own God. In 2018, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology reported on a series of studies that sought to show how the human experience, how experiences of awe actually promote humility. And so what they're showing is when someone experiences this sense of transcendence, this sense of awe, it actually helps them to become a more humble person. Now, as a Christian, we would say that this is like when we place our hands and our lives and our trust in God, it allows us to function with humility, knowing that he's got it and we get to move forward. But this scientific study showed this, when individuals encounter an entity that is vast and challenges their worldview, they feel awe, which leads to self-diminishment and subsequent humility. They also found that inducing awe led participants to present a more balanced view of their strengths and weaknesses to others, and acknowledge to a greater degree the contribution of outside forces on their own personal accomplishments. Friends, the only way that you can fight against this urge to be God yourself is to encounter the love of God more and more fully. And as you encounter his love and his care, 
It will produce in you a yield of fruit, of kindness, of humility. It will help you to be okay with not being God. You'll lay down some of those worries and anxieties, some of those things, expectations that you place on yourselves. And it will allow you to trust him completely. The research backs up what Christians have been saying for centuries. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? Anybody know the answer? The whole thing. That's it. Let's give it up for her. All right. Yeah. What is our only hope in life and death? Just the simple version, because I don't know the full version. You got catechized well. I am not my own, but I belong to God. Let's say that together. I am not my own, but I belong to God. That's good. We're going to do a little catechism here this morning, okay? What does it mean to belong to God? It means that you've been adopted by God. Your sins have been paid for by Jesus' death. Your life is hidden in Christ, and you're loved as a child of God. It means you don't have to be God. You just get to be a child of God. And we're going to walk through the two ways that James explains why that's such good news for us this morning. Diving into this text, two points, two examples of how we try to be our own God. First, we are not the judge of the universe, but God is. And second, you are not in control of the future, God is. So let's dive into this. You are not the judge of the universe, God is, point number one. Friends, I'm so glad that I'm not the judge of the universe. I would be a really bad judge. I would make really terrible decisions. And here's why I know that I would be a bad judge. Because many of the things that I thought 10, 15 years ago that I would have judged wrong or distasteful, those are the things that I like now. I, I've changed my mind on all kinds of things, and I will continue to because I'm a human. I'm somewhat fickle. But our passage today reminds us that God is judge. Let's look at verse 11. We're going to recap this. It says this, verse 11 and 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, is a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and the judges and the judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Here James is saying, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. When he says speak evil against one another, he's talking about any host of different ways that we could speak evil against someone. He could be talking about slander. He could be talking about gossip, harshness, over-criticizing. He says, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. The point that James is making here is that if we are focused on judging others, then we're missing the law for ourselves. It's like what Jesus has to say in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Judge not, that you may not be judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's saying that we have to have more of a focus on ourselves rather than judging others. But what he is not saying is that we cannot confront others. 
Because that would be contradictory to what he says in just the next chapters, just a few verses over, when he says that when someone is straying away from the Lord, going after sin, that we're to bring him back because it's a loving thing to do. But what he's saying is that you don't do that out of a sense of condemnation for that person, but out of a sense of love. So we don't stand as judge, but we stand as fellow brother, sister, and we try to bring people back because we love them, not because we judge them. What he's addressing here in this passage where he says, do not judge, is this self-righteous judgmental attitude that we can have oftentimes. God help us. In our desire to be people that follow after God, oftentimes we end up being judgmental and we take the place of God that none of us should be in. What he's telling us here is that we have to create a gospel culture. A culture where we love and accept one another because of what Christ has done. We know that no one is proved righteous by themselves. So even if someone is sinning, if they're our brother or our sister, we still love them. And that judgment fell on Christ. And so we seek after them with love. The basic posture of our heart has to be love and care rather than superiority. Friends, do you have a critical heart? There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? If your heart is just filled with outrage and bitterness, you're longing to dish out the judgment and justice that only God can give, maybe you're putting yourself in the place of God instead of trusting God to be God and you to be a child of God. At some point, you have to trust God. Even when someone is sinning and doing wrong, we want to get right, we want to get justice, we want to get even, vengeance. But the scriptures say that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so sometimes it's better to err on forgiveness than on judgmentalism. In Christianity, this is where we can rest easy. This is how I sleep at night with all the injustices that are going in the world, is that I know at the end of the day, every sin will be paid for. At the every, end of the day, every person in the world, every sin that they commit, every injustice that we see will be paid for. And it will either land on the one who's perpetrating that injustice, or it's already landed on Christ. And so I don't have to stress about being the judge of everyone on the planet. And I can forgive actively because I know that God is ultimately the judge. And what is wrong will be made right. Let's not fall into the patterns of the world, church. May the basic posture of our hearts be to love and care for others and not to judge them. Let's be known for our forgiveness and our love and not our judgmentalism. I love the way that C.S. Lewis says this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. When we confront others, it's always to help and not to judge. Friends, you aren't God. You're not the morality police. You're not the final judge. Let God be God and you be a child of God. 
And the second way that he applies this is he says, you are, in, you are not in control of your future. God is. You are not in control of your future. God is. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, right here in James. It's also one of the most challenging passages in the entire Bible. It's one of the most applicable passages in the entire Bible. Because when we get to this, we get to something that each of us does every single day. Especially a church as geeked out as we are that loves Google calendars as much as we do. We are making all kinds of plans, all kinds of schedules. We got a lot of ambitions, a lot of career ambitions and places to go and people to see. That's why our church is never actually all together because all the time we have at least 30 or 40% of our church off traveling somewhere, living out their plans, doing their things. It's not a bad thing. But this passage here, it could totally change the way you think about all of your plans. And instead of, you know, I've been there. I know that you've been there. That moment when we're trying to catch the airplane, but you know the airlines are all a mess right now. And so then you're like stuck somewhere that you don't want to be it can change that experience for you. Okay, that's a terrible experience, but I'm about to give you a little bit of hope in that experience, okay? Verse 13, James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. That's how my voice when I read this. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's the way I think about him saying that. He's kind of like chastising us a little bit. He says, come now. All right, so that the beginning when he says, come now, that's like him saying, listen up. Or as Megan's grandmother says, look it. All right, and when Nani says, look it, that means do not argue with what I'm saying right now. You will listen and you will do as I tell you. Look it, okay? That's what James is saying here. He's saying, look it. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's addressing all of us who are making these plans. They didn't have Google Calendar back then, but imagine how he would say it today. Those of you who are putting event after event on your Google Calendar, planning forward years at a time. And he's, he's talking about making a profit. And what I want you to realize here is he's not just talking about, you know, hustlers saying, I'm going to go over here and make some money, go over here and make some money. But back in the day, salaries were extremely rare. So, our day and age, lots of people make a salary, so they don't have to worry about where, they're, where, they're, um, where their money's coming from next month. But back in the day, that's not usually how they did it. You would have to go and earn a wage, and then you would be paid in re- return for what you provided, whether it's some service or some good. And so he's just talking about making your money. He's talking about making your plans. And he says... Verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We all live under this impression that our lives are under control. We all live under this impression that we're going to live for a long time. And actually, I think that this is a verse that hits us different in the 21st century because we're insulated from death in a weird kind of way. Never before in human history would I be able to be a pastor for 10 years in Boston and never do a funeral. Our healthcare system is amazing here. Praise God, that's a good thing. 
But that's a privileged perspective that we have. Our lives are much shorter than what they seem to us today because we're so insulated from death. Even in the way that we handle older or sick people in our society is to isolate so that we aren't troubled by their presence among us. But James reminds us, what is your life? You are a mist, a vapor in the wind. Here today, gone tomorrow, you don't know what is coming tomorrow or even for the rest of today. I love the way that Bible scholar Douglas Moo says this. He says, how can you, being the kind of creatures that you are, presume to dictate the course of future events? The fragility of human life and the consequent uncertainty of all human plans is the main point of this verse. So we make plans, but we are not in control of the future. And that is good news. When you go to God, you go with open hands and you say, it belongs to you. Time belongs to you, God. And if you don't give me what my plans dictated with how I would spend this time, I know that you will give me what you had for me in this time. And I'll trust you in it. What, uh, what if, instead of getting into a frenzy when our plans aren't working out, we trusted the Lord and said, you're God, I'm a child of God, and you love me dearly. I don't have to be in control of this. You're in control of it, and you're much better than me. You're, you're good, and I'm not always good. I trust you. Our plans will not always work out. I recently read a book. Um, it was a secular book by Oliver Berkman. Um, it's called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And I try to read like one time management book every year uh, because I'm a nerd and that's uh, one of the things I like to do. And uh, this one was different though. Has anybody read this? Anybody? No? Usually time management books are like, here's how you clear your email inbox a little bit more efficiently. This one was not that at all. This one, he said, basically in the very first paragraph, he said, you're only going to live 4,000 weeks. Let that soak in for just a second. You are only going to be alive. The average human, 76 years, is 4,000 weeks. He said, there's all kinds of important things that you're not going to get done in those 4,000 weeks. You have things on your to-do list that are important that you will have to neglect. And so the reality is that you just have to choose between what's important and, what, and what's most important and what's just kind of important. And it's freeing to think about life being short. And that's the point that he's making, is that life is short. In fact, the entire history of humanity is short. Hear what he has to say here. He says, Productivity is a trap. Becoming more efficient just makes you more rushed, and trying to clear the decks simply makes them fill up again faster. Nobody in the history of humanity has ever achieved work-life balance, whatever that might be, and you certainly won't get there by copying the six successful people, uh, the six things successful people do before 7 a.m. The day will never arrive when you finally have everything under control when the flood of emails has been contained, when your to-do lists have stopped getting longer, when your meeting 
all your obligations at work and in your home life, when nobody's angry with you for missing a deadline or dropping the ball, and when the fully optimized person you've become can turn at long last to the things life is really supposed to be about. Let's start by admitting defeat. None of us, none of this is going to happen. But you know what? That's excellent news. So what Oliver Berkman is tapping into here is what we've known for centuries in the Christian thought and Christian life. It's Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that I might have a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that I might have a heart of wisdom. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. When we stress out, it's because we want control over our lives. When we stress out, it's because we want control over our lives. That's true. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Okay, we're going to stress out. But this is helpful for us. Let this be helpful a little bit. James tells us that control is actually a complete, a complete illusion. You've never actually had control. And when you're feeling stressed because something is happening, it's revealing the fact that you actually weren't in control in the first place. The reality, friends, is that your life is not under your control. But the good news is it's way better than under your control. It's under God's control. That he is benevolent and kind and good and all-powerful. And he cares for you, not just as a servant, but as a child. His heart for you is better than your own heart for yourself. You are not God. You are not in control of the future. But he is. And the sooner you realize that you're not in control, but someone infinitely more caring and good than you is in control, the sooner you'll be able to sleep at night. <laughs> Some of you guys need to hand over that control right now. Some of you need to just take a moment and pray and say, God, I've been trying to control everything. I've been trying to control my kids. I've been trying to control my life. I've been trying to control the future. I've been taking this role that only you can take. And I come to you, God, now with open hands. Open hands. Where are you trying to control your life beyond allowing God to be in control? You're in charge, God. I trust you. Whatever you have for me is good. Whatever you have for me is good. James concludes here, he's, he, and he, he kind of concludes with a caveat. He says, basically, it's not that you don't make plans, but it's that you trust the Lord in your plans. It's not that you don't make plans, but it's that you trust the Lord in your plans. He says this, he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, thinking that you can go do whatever you want to do, and the Lord doesn't, he's not going to get in the way, or his plan doesn't matter. All such boasting is evil, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him and his sin. Now what James is not doing, not saying is something that I hear people do all the time, and what they do is they just stamp Lord willing onto things. 
All right, so they make their plans. You know, you make your Google calendar and then you get out your stamp and you say, Lord willing. All right, and you just say it. But what he's saying is actually the posture of your heart becomes, here are my plans, but whatever you will is better. So Lord willing, this is where I'm going. Our lives are full of broken dreams, are they not? of the way that life didn't go that we thought it would. But he's good. And we have to come back to that over and over again, that he's good and that he cares for us and that he, we're not invisible to him. There's this old scene in, in uh, Mad Men, another Mad Men uh, quote here, where there's a young guy that gets on an elevator with Don Draper uh, the main character who's just self-assured and confident. And uh, the young guy is like, you know, I really hate you. You're a really terrible person. And Don Draper just gets off the elevator and he's like, I don't think about you at all. Now, which one is the, of those is worse? Being, for, being completely unseen, so much worse than being hated. But what James is saying is that you are not unseen. You are not forgotten. But Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back? Why have you forgotten me? You see, he received the punishment that our sins deserve. And now we get to live as children of God, made one with him because of his righteous deeds, because his act of obedience. God does not turn his back, but he shines his face. Each week we remember this. We remember this intimacy with God that we get through a sacred meal. And when we participate in the sacred meal, we're being reminded that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And we're having this meal and we're inviting God into our lives and saying, whatever I have belongs to you. So church, let's, let's pray together. Father, as we come to your table, we pray that our hearts will be full of your grace and your kindness. And that you'll help us to hand over the control of our lives. The justice that we so seek, you own. The future that we so seek, you own. And God, we pray that that'll just be good news to us today, that we are not God, but you are. And that you hold the world together. And we can trust it all to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.